Please open to 1 Timothy. We're going to kind of be jumping around. I'm only going to read one verse here and then some other verses during the message. As we continue the study on the church, I want to look at the question of who's in charge here, or in other words, we're going to look at church government. How does the church function uh, governmentally as a church? There should be an outline in your bulletin, and there are printed messages, as always, at all the exits, and so you can access those as well. And uh, all of the back messages are online if you missed one and want to pick those up or listen to them or read them. They're all on the church website. Uh, Paul in 1 Timothy 3.1 writes, It's a trustworthy statement. If any man aspires to the office of overseer, uh, it is a fine work he desires to do. And overseer is used interchangeably with elder in the Bible. So, of church, as we look at this important subject of church government. Think if you were to ask the question, um, who's in charge of the church? Many, if not most American Christians, maybe without thinking, would say, well, the pastor is. And the reason I say that is often I get calls directed through uh, through. Uh, the secretary, and they want to talk to the pastor because they assume I'm in charge, and I know what's going on, and uh, that's just the common assumption. Uh, I think maybe it's due to our democratic form of government in America where, uh, although there are many differences, we kind of assume the pastor is like the president and the elder board or governing board, whoever they're called, are like the uh, Congress, and then the people of the church are like the voting members. And uh, in many churches, if the guys running the the church do a reasonable job, then, yeah, we'll keep them in, but uh, if they don't, well, we'll vote the bums out. You know, that's the American way. In fact, one of the greatest um, names in American church history is Jonathan Edwards. He was a, a pastor. He's the one... Uh, through whom much of the First Great Awakening, a revival, happened in our nation. And uh, he was a profound thinker and writer. We still read his works today. And his church voted him out of office. Uh, There was something they didn't like, and uh, it's an interesting story. Now, concerning church government, there are a number of different views. uh, And... uh, The three main ones, first of all, there's the Episcopal system, and uh, it's kind of hierarchical, where you have one leader at the top, and then tiers of leaders under them going down. Of course, in the Roman Catholic Church, the guy at the top is the Pope, but the Orthodox Church is similarly organized, where the Metropolitan is the main leader, sole leader, Um, In Anglican churches, it's the Archbishop of Canterbury. And then there are levels under them in the Catholic system, the cardinals, and then the archbishops and the bishops, and then down to the priest on the local level. And each of them has jurisdiction over um, 
wider and then narrower and narrower areas down to the local church level. Uh, That form of church government seems to have come into uh, prominence back in the middle of the second century, so it's very old way of governing the church. Another form is the Presbyterian form of church government. It's not quite so uh, hierarchical and authoritarian from the top-down kind of thing, but there are tiers of authority. The local church is governed by a board of elders called the Presbytery or the Session, and it's led usually by the pastor. The pastor is chosen and called by the congregation. And then the churches in an area are part of what's called a synod or presbytery, where it's made up of pastors and some elders from all the churches in that area. And then above the whole thing is called the General Assembly, uh, and they have broader jurisdiction. The third basic form of church government is what we might call the independent system, where Every local church is autonomous. They don't answer to any uh, outside authority. Uh, You have some independent Baptist churches, such as the Southern Baptist uh, Convention, where the churches affiliate together in a broader organization. They just had their annual uh, convention down in Phoenix last month. And um, the churches that are a part of such Uh, A convention have to all adhere to their doctrine and practices and so on, but they do not, uh, the the main organization has no authority except if a church really deviated, I think they could uh, exclude them from the organization. Our church here is independent from any outside authority. Uh, It is led And I might add, uh, too, under the independent system, some churches are elder-led, some churches are more congregationally governed. Ours is uh, led by elders who are appointed by the church, and since long before I came here, 25 years ago, the church has been affiliated with an organization called the Conservative Baptist Association, That's probably news to some of you. We don't wave a flag on it. But um, it's an affiliation of Baptist churches in Arizona and a few in uh, Utah and New Mexico. And they have no authority over us. It's just a cooperative kind of association. Now, let me sum up my understanding of biblical church government. And uh, as indicated, there are a number of differing views and They all have some biblical basis, of course, or there wouldn't be. They'd all be the same. But my understanding is this, that Christ exercises headship over his church through church-recognized, spiritually mature elders who shepherd his flock. And I want to break that down into three um, points. The first one is that the basic principle of church government is that Christ is the head of his church. Now, of course, all three systems that I just mentioned of church government believe that. Um, It's how that works out, where the differences come, but we all would believe that Christ is the head of his church. 
I want to think for a moment with you, though, about the practical ramifications of that statement. Um, What it means, first of all, is it's not my church. It's Christ's church. And I know, and I've said this, so I'm guilty as you are, but it's really easy to say something like, uh, oh, you were in California? Did you get to go to John MacArthur's church? And John would not want it called his church. Uh, But we say that, and I'm sure you've said that. Oh, I go to Steve Cole's church, but please, I would rather we didn't. But it's easy to do that, but no pastor owns his church. Uh, Hopefully, we all influence our churches, but Christ is the head of his church. Same thing, I can say, it's not your church. Now, maybe you say, wait a minute, I'm a member here, and I've been a member longer than you've been here. Uh, I'm glad to hear that. Um, maybe you give generously to support the church here, and I'm glad to hear that. Maybe you serve in a number of ways, and I'm glad to hear that as well. But uh, even so, it's not your church in the sense you don't own it, and any amount of service, any amount of money you give, any amount of anything doesn't up your stake in the corporation, so to speak. It's not like you can come to a meeting and say, I'm the big shareholder here, and uh, I'm going to throw my weight around and vote the way I think. Uh, You don't own the church. It's Christ. He purchased it with his blood, and I hope we're all committed to it. I hope we all serve in it. hope we all give generously to it, but it's not my church. It's not your church. It's Christ's church. He's the head. He's the king. And so that means, again, that the main function of church government is to allow Christ to exercise his headship over his church. And what that means is, hear me out, the church is not a pure democracy where every member can vote. And I don't like the word vote because it smacks of American politics. Um, In American politics... People go to the polls to vote their mind. Well, I have an opinion about this, and I'm going to vote for so-and-so because he represents my view, and he'll get my agenda through, and all of that. It's very preferential-oriented, and that's not how the church should operate. The main question when we come together for a church meeting to determine some direction is not, what do our members think? The main question is, what does the Lord of the church think? And that's fundamentally different. And we we figure that out through his word, and I realize sometimes there are differences of, of opinion on, well, how does the Bible apply in this situation? But you see the difference? We put ourselves under the authority of Christ, and we don't come to make my views known. We come to say, wait a minute, what does the Lord want? done in his church. He owns it. And that's an entirely different way of conducting church business than what we might call church politics. And I I grew up in the church, and I saw a lot of um, politics going on, factions forming, trying, like in Congress, you know, we're going to get the votes here, 
come on, you know, come out to the meeting and, and here's why we want to vote this way and we're going to go against the pastor or we're going against the elders or whatever and we're going to get this in. And It's all self-willed politics. When I first came here, I was having lunch with a denominational executive, a director of the Southwest CBA, and he said to me, um, you know, Steve, when you're a new pastor, you've got to build your power base. And I didn't say anything. I was the new kid on the block, but I thought to myself, sorry, I am not into building a power base. That's politics. I am into seeing people come under the lordship of Christ. And that's a whole different way of governing a church. I'm not here to throw my weight around. I'm not here to manipulate people or build a block of votes to get it this way or that way. I'm here to say, wait a minute, what does the Lord want for his church? And bring us all, me too, under the submission to Jesus Christ as Lord. Now, that means when we come together for a church meeting, rather than expressing my opinion, I deny myself and say, well, what does the word of God say? Uh, And we all prayerfully, reverently come together to say, Lord, what is your mind for the church? That's what we want, Jesus to be Lord of his church. And that's very different than church politics. So that's the fundamental principle. Then, how does Christ exercise his headship? Well, he does it through... Uh, church-recognized, spiritually mature elders. And there are four things I want to say in that regard. First of all, the church corporately is responsible to recognize spiritually mature elders. Uh, We read in Acts 14.23, Paul and Barnabas had founded churches Now they're making a follow-up visit after the churches have been going for a short while. And it says, when they had appointed elders for them in every church, notice, I'll point this out in a moment, elders, plural, in every church, singular, having prayed with fasting, so they didn't get a vote together and say, you know, uh, which faction is going to win, who likes Joe, who likes Bill, that kind of thing, no, The apostles prayed with fasting. They commended them to the Lord in whom they had believed. Now later, Paul sent out his apostolic delegates, Timothy and Titus, to set in order the different churches. And uh, to them, he wrote, and we'll look more at this next week, the qualifications for elders in 1 Timothy 3 and in Titus chapter 1. And also the qualifications for deacons in 1 Timothy 3, who were involved in serving in local churches. Uh, We no longer have apostles and we no longer have apostolic delegates, but they left us, Paul left us, through the Holy Spirit, the inspired word of God. And so when we recognize elders, we should go to the word of God, look at the characteristics that are listed there, and say, yeah, yeah, that guy fits. He matches the qualifications. So we're talking about recognizing elders, not voting on elders, and uh, there's a key difference. Again, you might vote for an elder because you say, yeah, he's a nice guy. I really like him. 
You know, I, I really have had some good times with him, and he's my buddy. Bad reason to vote for an elder. That's not how we do it. Um, that's just personal preference. The issue in church government is, again, does this man possess the qualifications listed in Scripture for an elder? Now, let me be quick to say, nobody is perfect there. Just like you can go through the fruit of the Spirit. Anyone want to say you have all nine qualities down pat? Uh, No, those are lifelong pursuits. But hopefully as you grow in Christ, you're approximating those. You're growing in those. Same thing with these qualifications for elder that we'll look at uh, next week. At least a man should not glaringly violate any of them, and he should generally match those qualities. Now, that means at our church meeting, rather than coming in and voting your preferences, hopefully you say, you know, as best I know this man, yes, he approximates what an elder ought to be, according to Scripture. Maybe you live next door to him. And you see the way he treats his wife and kids. And you say, he really shows Christ in his home life. Or maybe you work with him or you work for him. And you say, you know, he is really showing Christ on the job. He's a decent man. He's honest, a man of integrity. He deals fairly with all the employees. He serves them all, that kind of thing. Or you've seen him deal with people and you say, this man has a shepherd's heart. He really, truly cares for people. He helps them at his own cost. You know, he, he is an elder. He meets the biblical qualifications. So the members recognize elders. They also need to hold elders accountable. That's charged to the whole church. In other words, if an elder begins to stray from the Lord, either morally or doctrinally, Uh, then um, the church needs to hold his feet to the fire, especially on the essential truths of the Christian faith, the uh, total inspiration and uh, authority of the Bible, the Trinitarian nature of God, the deity and humanity of Christ, his substitutionary atonement on the cross, his bodily resurrection, bodily ascension into heaven, his second coming. Those are things... We don't allow tolerance on those. Those are the core. And every elder should always uphold and affirm those. Same thing with morals. If an elder is acting morally contrary to the um, standards of God's word, then uh, the members need first to talk to him, find out if it's true. Uh, If he doesn't repent, if it is true, then you go with one or two others I believe at that point, if he doesn't repent, you take it to the elder board and eventually to the whole church, the Matthew 18 procedure that I'll speak about in a few weeks. But what this implies is this. As a member of this church, you need to know your Bible well so you can spot deviations. Say, wait a minute, this church is drifting. You know, how do you think churches get into liberalism? and tolerating all manner of evil without judging moral sin. Well, it's gradually like the proverbial frog in the kettle. First people start saying, well, he's a nice guy. You know, yeah, he's a little off on the deity of Jesus. Or, yeah, yeah, he's got a problem there and, and tolerating this sin in his life. 
pretty soon it just kind of veers away until finally you get churches like some of them in town that are way, way off from the Bible. And um, now, let me just say, you know, don't nitpick with an elder on minor things. We're talking about core issues, uh, if an elder strays on those things. The normal thing, it says in Hebrews 13, 17, an elder should be obeyed if he's walking with the Lord. But if he's beginning to veer, you're on. You're, you're the one who's supposed to go and talk to him. And elders do not have autocratic authority over a church. They are to be examples to the flock, as we'll see in a moment. A second thing to note, and this is controversial, but I think it's in the Bible, elders should be men and not women. Now, we live in a day of egalitarian, uh, egalitarian advocates, even in the church, but there are no examples in the Bible of women elders. Uh, a couple of times over the years, I've been invited to um, be the pastor at a church and found out in the process that those churches had women elders. And I said, you know, I don't think I'm your guy. Uh, because if I come in and teach what the Bible teaches, I'll be a bad guy. And if I force them to deal with it before I come, I'm still a bad guy. And it's not going to fly. But um, in those who argue for egalitarianism, they say, well, it was just cultural. You know, that was in the first century. It was a male-dominated society, and Paul didn't want to offend the culture. But now, where everybody knows that women are totally uh, able to do anything men can do, women can be pastors and elders and so on. Well, let me share a couple of scriptures here. 1 Corinthians chapter 11 and verse 3. Paul is talking here in the context of the church, and he says this, But I want you, in Corinth... I want you to understand that Christ is the head of every man and the man is the head of a woman and God is the head of Christ. And he goes on then to base his teaching too on the order of creation where the man was created first and then the woman. And um, so what what he's saying I think is this. In the Godhead there is a hierarchy of authority. All three members of the Trinity are equally God. There's no difference there. But to function in the Godhead, the Father has authority, the Son submits to the Father's authority, and the Spirit submits to the Father and the Son. And in the church and in the home, we are to reflect the image of God where equal in personhood, husband and wife, or men and women in the church, we reflect the image of God by that structure of uh, authority. Now, needless to say, to be the head does not in any way tolerate abusive authority. And that's what always pops into people's minds. Well, you mean I have to submit to an abusive husband and that kind of thing? That man would be sinning in a horrible way. But the Bible shows even though Jesus is completely equal to God, he voluntarily submitted to the divine plan, took on flesh, went to the cross, and even in eternity, 
He's going to yield up the kingdom to the Father so that God will be all in all. 1 Corinthians 15, 28 says that. Let me take you to one other verse. In 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 11 and 12, Paul said, A woman must quietly receive instruction with entire submissiveness. But I don't allow a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man, but to remain quiet. And again, I've read the evangelical feminist arguments, and they try to say that was cultural, uh, that was just for that time. But then Paul goes on, and he bases his instruction on the order of creation, and also on the fact that it was the woman who was deceived, and not the man in the fall. And so he's basing it on historical, biblical grounds, not on something that is merely cultural. Uh, Also, when you look at the qualifications for elders, which we'll do next time in 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1, it assumes elders will be men because Paul uses the masculine pronoun all through. He says elders must be the husband of one wife and they must manage their own households well. So women may serve on the staff of a local church. They may Uh, pastor, shepherd other women, and teach other women, but there is to be, uh, the church is to be led by godly men who are in leadership. The third thing to note, then, is that elders must be spiritually mature men. Spiritually mature. Uh, We'll look, as I said, at the qualifications next week. I don't have time to go over them this morning, but just the term, elder, Elder looks at the maturity of the man, not necessarily in years, but spiritual qualifications. Um, You go to the Bible and there's no age requirement for an elder. Uh, He may be relatively young if it's a young congregation. If it's a more mature congregation, then uh, they may need some more mature elders in terms of age. But it's interesting, when Paul told Timothy in 1 Timothy 4.12, don't let anyone look down on your youthfulness, he was probably in his mid-30s, most scholars say, in his mid-30s. And then he goes on in that same verse and exhorts Timothy to be an example to the church in um, speech, conduct, love, faith, and purity. So, in other words, he was to be a godly man in his 30s, to to represent Christ to those churches. A second term is overseers, and sometimes it's translated bishops. Uh, It's the word episkopos, from which episcopalians and that whole system gets that word. Um, It refers to the nature of the work. An elder is to oversee or superintend, watch over, guard the local church. That means they have to be mature enough to discern dangers. Uh, They have to guard the flock. They have to guide the flock into spiritual growth. A third word is pastor, and that word means shepherd. And it's used in noun form only once for church leaders in Ephesians 4.11. But it's as verb form, it's used several times. It looks at the work from the analogy of a shepherd and his sheep, one that's Of course, in Psalms, Psalm 23, it's in the New Testament as well, as Jesus is our shepherd. In fact, Jesus in 1 Peter 2.24, 
is called the shepherd and guardian of our souls. Uh, Shepherd is pastor, guardian is the Greek episkopos. So he's the overseer as well as the shepherd of our souls. And he's the chief shepherd, which means any local church elders serve as under shepherds. We will give an account to the chief shepherd someday. There's a fourth Greek term called prohistemi. It means to stand before or to stand first uh, or to lead or have charge over people. It's used several times. And then there's a fifth word for church leaders called hegeomai in Greek. And I use the Greek because we get an English word hegemony from it, which has the idea of authority. And also Jesus said, though, It requires servanthood, but it means to lead or to rule. So all of those terms imply a measure of spiritual maturity, and we'll look more at the specifics of that in uh, next Sunday, Lord willing. A fourth thing, then, is, first of all, a church is responsible to recognize spiritually mature elders. Uh, Secondly, they must be men and not women. Thirdly, they must be spiritually mature, and then, Finally, as I mentioned already, elders must be a plurality in a local church. Um, The term is always used, always used every single time in the plural with regard to a singular church. Now, it may be in big cities that many elders had charge over single house churches, but they were all viewed as one church when they came together under a plurality of elders. And there is wisdom, as the book of Proverbs says, in a multitude of counselors. And there's wisdom in sharing the authority in a local church. Often people will come to me and ask, you know, if they can do something. And unless it's really minuscule, I'll usually say, I don't know, I need to run that by the elders. I don't make autocratic decisions. I uh, share that with the elders. There's one case in the New Testament of a one-man ruler in a local church, and it's not positive. In 3 John, John mentions this guy named Diotrephes. He says he loves to be first among them, and he was exercising this autocratic authority, kicking people out of the church and so on, and John basically says, I'm going to deal with him when I come. Uh, So um, that's not a good thing. Usually, elders should seek to reach a consensus where they all agree on any major decision in the church. The more divided they are, if it's a 4-3 vote or something like that, in my opinion, they don't have the mind of the Lord yet. They need to stop and pray and, and seek God longer until they can be more united than that um, before they proceed. How many elders in a local church? The New Testament doesn't say. I would say that should be according to need. Um, Bigger church, obviously. One person, one man can only shepherd so many people. So the larger the church, the more need for shepherding, the more elders will be needed. Uh, There's no concept in the New Testament of elders serving a term of office, but it may not be a bad idea for them to do so in that It's a difficult job, and sometimes a man needs the ability to say, you know, I need to take a break for a while. My family's at a certain point, or my job is demanding, 
or whatever. I just can't give this the time and the effort it requires. Um, the way our church constitution is set up, all elders and all deacons serve one-year renewable term. In other words, if they want to be considered the next year, they may. Uh, it gives the church a chance to evaluate the elder, gives the elder a chance to say, uh, my life right now uh, demands that I take a break from the job. So, basic principle then of church government is, uh, Christ is the head of his church, and he exercises that headship through church-recognized, spiritually mature elders. One more thing to consider then is, well, what are those elders supposed to do? And the main task of elders is to lead through example and teaching as they shepherd God's flock. Three things there. First of all, elders should lead by a godly example. The example of servant leadership. That's the the model the New Testament gives us. Uh, One other passage, and again, I've preached a whole sermon on these verses, so I can only read them here. Um, In 1 Peter 5, 1 through 3, Peter says, Therefore, I exhort the elders among you as your fellow elders. So Peter was an apostle, but he was also serving as an elder in a local church. And witness of the sufferings of Christ, and a partaker also of the glory that's to be revealed. Here's the command. Shepherd the flock of God among you exercising oversight, that's that word, overseer, not under compulsion, but voluntarily, according to the will of God, and not for sordid gain, but with eagerness, nor yet as lording it over those allotted to your charge, but proving to be examples to the flock. Allotted to your charge means elders do have charge or authority in a local church, And what they are to do, Peter says, is exercise oversight, not by lording it over the flock, but by proving to be examples of Christ-like servanthood. And you remember the example Jesus gave us on the night he was betrayed. He washed the disciples' feet, and he gave them a lesson in servanthood and said, the leader among you should be as the servant, the slave of all. And so that's how we should lead in the local church. A second thing to note is that elders then should be able to teach the word of God faithfully. Uh, When you go through the list that we'll look at next week for elders, the only um, non-character qualification that's listed is elders should be able to teach. I don't think that means they all need to be able to preach or teach a large class or something, Those require certain skills, but it means he ought to know the Bible so well that when somebody comes along, maybe a younger believer, he can sit down with them, explain the things of God from Scripture clearly, correct errors with gentleness, that sort of thing. Uh, Titus chapter 1 and verse 9 says that an elder must hold fast the faithful word, which is in accordance with the teaching so that he'll be able both to exhort in sound doctrine and to refute those who contradict. In 1 Timothy 5.17, Paul says that some elders should be 
supported by the church, those who, he says, work hard at preaching and teaching. And, of course, all of this assumes the Bible is our standard for faith and practice, so the elders know the Bible, they teach the Bible to God's people. And then the last thing is that an elder should shepherd God's flock. Now, that requires some administration. The whole idea of oversight means overseeing, which means financial issues, other kinds of things that come up. But the main job is pastoral. They are to shepherd God's flock. And um, we really seek to do that as elders. Uh, First part of our elders meeting, we pray for a page or two of the church directory Um, If you're not in there, you're not getting prayed for, at least unless we know of a certain need. So you might want to join the church and become a part of the family here if you're a local. Uh, We want to, we talk about, you know, how that family's doing. And if there's a need, we try and help and address that need, that kind of shepherding. Uh, From the New Testament and partly from the Old There are a number of things a shepherd does for his flock. He knows them. John chapter 10, Jesus says the shepherd knows his sheep. He leads them. He feeds them and guides them into the rich pastures of God's word. Uh, He guards them from wolves, from predators who would destroy them. He goes after the strange sheep and seeks to see them restored to the Lord to help heal their wounds. Uh, He corrects the erring or rebellious sheep, and generally he tries to equip the the flock for ministry so that they can fulfill whatever God has given them to do in the church family. So to go back to the original question then, well, who's in charge of the church? Jesus Christ is. He exercises that headship through church-recognized, spiritually mature elders who Uh, through example and servanthood, shepherd his flock. Now, I want to come back to the verse I read at the very beginning. In 1 Timothy 3.1, Paul says, It's a trustworthy statement. If any man aspires to the office of overseer or elder, it is a fine work he desires to do. And that word aspire means to to reach after, to go after. Now, he's not talking about selfish ambition or... Uh, The pride of saying, hey, I'm an elder around here. None of that, but rather reaching towards spiritual maturity so that uh, someday you you can serve the chief shepherd by helping to shepherd his flock. My prayer is some of you younger men would aspire to the office of elder or overseer as God puts that on your heart. That you would say, you know, I believe God is calling me to that work someday. It may not mean being a full-time pastor, but it may mean serving a local church in the capacity that I've explained of being uh, a spiritually mature elder. To get there from where you're at, you need to daily begin growing in godliness through the word, through prayer. Uh, If you're married, shepherd your family. Your wife and children, care for them, serve them, um, be an example in your home of what a servant leader is, a, a good shepherd is. 
And then in the church, build caring relationships with other men, especially those younger than you in the faith, with a view of helping them grow in Christ. And uh, after a while, the church might say, you know, he's really functioning as an elder. So the idea is not, you know, Joe needs to get involved. Let's make him an elder. Bad, bad decision. Rather, you know, Joe's serving as an elder. Look at how he's shepherding his family. Look at how he's shepherding the church. Let's recognize Joe as an elder. That's the biblical pattern. And we need men in this church who do that. We can't grow without it. So my prayer is that God will put it on the hearts of some of the younger men in the church to say, you know, I really sense God is calling me to that. Talk to any of us who are elders, and we'd be glad to uh, try to help you in that process. Let's bow together in prayer. Uh, I haven't had a chance in the message, didn't relate to the subject per se, but as we're bowed in prayer, let me mention that all of this is predicated on one fabulous truth in the Bible, and that's called the gospel. And the gospel means that though we are all sinners and alienated from God who is holy because of our sin, in his mercy and love, God sent a solution, a savior who is Jesus Christ. He is God in human flesh. He came to this earth, lived a perfect life, died as a substitute for sinners on the cross. And gospel means good news, and here's the good news part of it. Even though you have sinned greatly, Jesus offers total forgiveness and eternal life to every sinner who will turn to him and believe in him. It's a free gift. It's not something you have to qualify for, something you have to earn over years of good behavior. It's something he gives because of what is called his grace, his undeserved favor. And our invitation to you is to receive his grace if you've never done so. You can do it in your heart right now. Father, I pray that you would work in the hearts of each one of us. If any don't know Jesus, you would impress on them the need to trust him. I pray you would put on the hearts of some of the younger men in this church to desire to serve you in the capacity of being an elder someday, and that we would see many godly men raised up to shepherd your flock here. We ask, I ask in Jesus' name, amen.